My name is Steve Gilman, and for decades I've been helping brands engage with their audiences. On this podcast, we'll connect the dots in the fast-paced world of branding by talking with entrepreneurs, leaders, and marketers on the front lines of telling brand stories. Today, I'm talking with Khalil Garriott, Director of Branded Content and Executive Editor at James Madison University, about how everyone has a story to tell, thinking like a journalist, and the significance of precise language in marketing. Welcome to today's episode of Brand Story. My guest is Khalil Garriott, who is the Director of Branded Content and Executive Editor for James Madison University. Khalil uh, previously worked as Managing Editor for Red Bull Media House and Senior Editor and Digital Content Editor for the NFL Media Group. He was also the website editor for the NFL Players Association, and uh, you were a sports producer and a columnist for AOL as well. So welcome, Khalil. That is quite a career. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the introduction. Yeah. It's, you know, I was looking at, uh, at all you've done, and you know, not all your work because you're so prolific, but that's a really interesting, exceptional career that you've had so far and content in content and in sports marketing. And sports marketing is really competitive. Um, and it's a little cutthroat. Can you tell me a little bit about that industry and how you got started in that and what brought you from Red Bull to JMU? And Sure. So, yeah, long story short, um, I guess I have about 17 years of professional experience now. And uh, I appreciate the kind words. I'm, uh, I always try to remember humility. And uh, there are many people out there with much more impressive careers than mine. But anyway, I appreciate the kudos. Um, so of those 17 years, you know, most of that um, has been in sports media. I spent about 14 years um, in sports media, uh, specifically digital, creating digital content. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's definitely a competitive space. Um, each of the jobs I've had in sports, probably there would be, you know, a line a mile long for, for people lining up for those types of jobs. So. I've been extremely lucky to have some fun gigs and to be able to do some different things along the way. You know, I've I've always loved uh, sports and I've always also loved storytelling. So uh, in the course of my career, I've kind of looked for ways to marry those two passions um, because, you know, I, I believe that a person's happiest when they're just doing what they love and when what they love and when work doesn't feel like work. I can definitely agree with that. And you're, you know, the fact that you ended up at NFL Media and Red Bull Media House, I mean, those are some names where the content coming out of both those organizations is so exceptional and it's so fast paced. There's so much of it. So I really compliment on you on, on your career path and that's working for some pretty cool brands. Definitely. Yeah. I, I've, I've had the good fortune of, of working for some um, world-class brands that truly are, you know, known globally. And, you know, with that comes a certain level of, of added expectations, right? So, you know, the content um, being turned out at those few places you mentioned, fans and audiences just have an insatiable appetite to eat that content up. And so, um, you know, it's the big leagues. And uh, when you make a mistake, that gets amplified. And, um, you know, the more traffic you have to your site or the more people following your social handles, et cetera, um, with that comes some added pressure. So, you know, it's not for everybody, although those, although those are, you know, dream jobs for a lot of folks. Uh, you mentioned earlier it being cutthroat and it's and not all people are cut out for those types of jobs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the pace at any media job, at any content job, or really in the marketing world, the pace is really fast. I mean, and it's just gotten faster every year. But in those particular industries and those particular brands, I'm sure just the, the sheer volume of content alone and then the expectation of quality is quite a job. The volume and the velocity. Yeah. Um, and I happen to be a fan of alliteration. Luckily, those two words are just happened to start with a V, but those two words really stand out. You know, it's, it's turning out a lot of content and it's doing it at a, at a pretty fast pace. Um, and so of course, you know, mistakes pop up along the way when you move, move at a certain cadence, that's extremely fast. Um, but it also kind of tests what you're made of. And, you know, you know, that when you put when you hit publish on a certain article or, you know, you hit tweet on a, uh, you know, highly visible piece of content, 
that um, people are going to see it. And so, again, you have to kind of step up your game to match um, match the sheer size of those audiences. Yeah, I really liked what you said when we when one of the first things you said about trying to align, you know, your interest in sports with your interest in storytelling. Because I agree with you, and you love what you do, and you have a real honest interest in it. It's going to be that much easier to perform at a high level. Yeah, it just makes things easier, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, you you don't feel the drudgery of going to a job every day that just doesn't you know get you going. And um, you know, a lot of people use the phrase um, "what keeps you up at night." I I try to flip that and think about what what gets me up in the morning. You know, why why am I excited to go to my job or what is it about the work that I'm going to do on a given day um, that really excites me? And then just just keep your finger on the pulse of that and try to that try for that to kind of be your north star that guides you when you know when you have a tough day or when something doesn't go your way. For example, um, just kind of remember what what fuels your fire and, and follow that if you can. Yeah, I think that's great advice for anyone watching and for young marketers and. People just going into communications and marketing and content and all, everything that's in our world. Um, I've been a storyteller since I was about 10 years old. So I, there's no way I'm not going to be doing storytelling. It's all I've done my whole life. I was directing plays in my front yard as a kid and studied theater and marketing at JMU. So I think you, you and I both are JMU alums. Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, ended up in marketing and basically brand storytelling. So for me, it's my North Star. You know, probably just like yours, I love telling stories. And the more I can tell someone else's story well, the more fun it is for me. Yeah, I mean, truly everybody has a story to tell. And, you know, with that, you need to be a good listener um, and just kind of recognize that as the storyteller, uh, it's not about me. Um, You know, and that probably goes back to my uh, upbringing in the journalism industry. But you know, you're kind of taught in J School 101 that don't make the story about you and, you know, keep the focus on the subject. So I think as as the media industry has evolved and changed over time to a certain extent, I think that has been lost a little bit where, you know, you see a lot of um, media figures who who become the story and then, you know, it kind of takes on a different life of its own. But um, I've always tried to approach it as, you know, let me be the fly on the wall or let me be the person behind the, behind the camera or let me be just the neutral observer. And, and from that, I think the, the best stories come. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. Um, my career started and our company started doing documentaries. And we did documentaries uh, uh, in cooperation with Greenpeace. We ended up making a really strange connection and going from them to the Postal Service because Greenpeace recommended us to the Postal Service because we were just doing doing what a lot of media people don't do. We were just getting the heck out of the way and telling honest stories. It wasn't about us. It wasn't about trying to edit it in a cool way or get something on our reel. We just wanted to tell stories about people. Yeah, it always comes back to people. Yeah, and I think I get that from theater because it's it's very human. Definitely. And, you know, storytelling is as old as Cain and Abel, as they say. It goes back, you know, centuries. And human beings have an inherent draw toward um, stories and you know who doesn't love um, spinning a good yarn or who doesn't love you know sitting around the campfire and just hearing a tall tale whether it's true or not I mean it's it's entertaining right and and I hope that that never goes away because um, if it does I think our industry might be in some trouble but you know for now you see brands Name a brand that doesn't do content. Yeah. Uh, I can't. I can't either. You know, everybody truly is in the content space now. So, you know, before maybe three, four decades ago, it would have been would have been a more exclusive club of, you know, traditional legacy media outlets. And then just everything changed with the rise of the Internet and, and social um, where truly all brands are expected to, to create content of some form. Yeah. And if they, if they aren't doing it actively, they will be soon. You know, it is really great content and great stories is a competitive advantage. So if, if you're not out there telling stories, 
<laughs> listen to this interview today and maybe it'll inspire you to tell more. Um, so at Red Bull, one of the things I noticed, and we'll talk about JMU really soon. I just have one more question about your previous career. One of the things you did is you established some more storytelling formats while you were there. You know, and I, I had no idea this was you, but I noticed because I've always been a fan of Red Bull Media because really who isn't um, if you like sports at all. Um, but you started doing, you know, content from the athlete's point of view, content about athletes, social stories, incorporating artists. Can you tell me a little bit about what you learned from, from launching those new formats? That's a good question. Um, I would say that, you know, one of, one of Red Bull's, um, strengths and even, you know, what it's known for is just playing in a lot of spaces. And so, um, that's a company that is certainly not shy about getting into music festivals or uh, culture or uh, esports, for example, the list goes on. And so to your question, I would say one thing that, that I learned in working there and, and some of my previous colleagues there might agree with is that just, and this is gonna be broad, but just the value of taking risks. Um, you know, obviously Red Bull is known as, as a brand that pushes the envelope and um, you know, takes things to the extreme in a good way, uh, you could say, but, you know, we found that it's, it's truly all about the athletes and the artists. Um, and you know, people, certain people do follow brands, but I believe bigger than that, people follow people. Mm -hmm. And so, um, sure. When you have the Red Bull, uh, name behind a piece of content or it's, or it's under the Red Bull umbrella, that will of course garner interest but going back to my point earlier about humans being drawn to storytelling people just gravitate to other people so in that role you know i feel like we did a good job in keeping the focus on the athletes the artists all the red bull affiliated individuals because they're the ones driving the brand truly you know it reminds me of uh, one of our guests was Scott Whithouse. He's a professor professor of visual storytelling down at the Brand Center at VCU. And he talks a lot about um, some of the same things. And yeah, I think that, you know, keeping it about people and keeping it authentic and not just being about cool shots and and really great angles, you know, it comes down to human stories almost every single time. That's really what the draw ends up being to to successful content. Yeah. And also, you know, when I mentioned earlier about the, the added level of ex exposure, uh, the bigger the brand is, you know, with that comes also a, a higher level of excellence or um, a higher level of expectation in terms of, you know, when you're a, a smaller shop or a brand that's maybe lesser known, you, you might be able to get away with um, taking a shortcut here or there right. or you know, a pushing out a piece of content that, that maybe isn't as good as it can be. But one thing I've um, found in the course of my career is that um, it, when you work at a place as big as that, that's not the MO. It's, it's more about, um, you know, I personally don't believe in perfection, but I do believe in excellence. So striving toward excellence. And if something doesn't meet that high bar, then don't put it out. And, you know, it, it just might not see the light of day and that's fine and, and being okay with that. Yeah. That's great advice. Cause you know, all media is competing for the same eyeballs, you know? So the expectation, the bar is set by all the media that's out there, not just, you know, the thing you happen to be launching, you know, and there's a lot of different flavors and a lot of different forms, but you know, the, the speed at which stories are delivered, the techniques, you have to stay current on them or you get left behind. So I think that's a great point. You know, it's it's always on and always changing. Yeah. And that, let's be real, that is difficult to keep <laughs> up with. It really is. You know, I can't think of many other industries that have experienced as much change as the media industry has, you know, even just in recent years, like let's take the past one or two decades. I mean, truly everything has changed. And if you're following the same strategy in 2021 that you had even in 2010, which is not that far, you know, not that far ago in the, in the past, then you're not doing it right. And so 
that can be exhausting, right? And and that can be challenging. And you know, I don't have all the answers. I don't think anybody really has all the answers. But the the bigger point is to be able to evolve and to be able to to try to just iterate to to keep up with all the trends. Yeah, I think that's a. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it is really um, unique to our industry that just the speed of change. You know, just how TikToks influence the speed of how you deliver video, how there's so many different, the, the technology change alone, you know, along around with cameras and editing and everything. But I think it really helps. It kind of goes back to your original point. If you have a passion for storytelling, then it makes having to keep up with the incredibly uh, incredible amount of constant change a lot easier. You know, if you weren't passionate about this and you were in it, it will eat you alive. Yes. You know, and... And there are a lot of reformed journalists out there or a lot of people who used to be in the media field who I know personally who have just kind of said, I, I can't do it anymore. You know, I, I can't keep up with it. Um, and that's to no fault of their own, I believe. But um, it can it can wear a person out if you're not careful with your time, for sure. Yeah, you have to take strategic breaks. You have to have other healthy habits, you know, and then it really helps if you're honestly interested in it and you enjoy it. You know, some people who I, th I find that people who are lifelong learners and they're just endlessly curious cope with the changes in our industry better than people who are like, I want to get this set and just do it the same way. Because I feel like, you know, if you and I decided something was set today, two weeks from now, it's going to be different. You know, it moves at such a pace that there's no settling that, you know, there's no just like, okay, we've got it. We're done. You, so we have a very embraced change mindset here. And, you know, luckily we have a team that, that everyone thinks that way, but it is, it can really tire people out. You know, it's, it's cliche to say, and I, as a, a words person by trade, I try to avoid cliches altogether, right. but um, the only constant is change. And there's a lot of truth to that in our field. Yeah, there sure is. So a couple of years ago, you changed your path a little bit. And you came back to your alma mater and you're now in Harrisonburg, Virginia at JMU. And I always, I always love that. It's one of the reasons I wanted to interview you is a lot of great people end up coming back to Harrisonburg, like real talented people. And so what brought you back? What, what, how, was it part lifestyle, the job? What was it? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, a, a few different factors brought me back. Um, definitely made a, li a lifestyle change, uh, as you said. And, you know, I relocated from Los Angeles to Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. <laughs> Just a small change. No big deal. Yes. Yeah, a slight culture shock. Um, although I had lived here before. Do you miss the sushi? Yes. I miss the entire LA yeah. culinary scene. Oh, I bet. It's second to none. Um, you know, but there's a lot to like about this place and this area. And, you know, ultimately it was a, a call to serve my beloved alma mater. And that was just something that, that um, to my point earlier about what gets you up in the morning, I truly love James Madison University. You know, it's been, it's been a big part of my life since, you know, 1999. And um, to be able to, to come back and serve JMU in a content role, so still, you know, the same type of field I had been in, um, just really intrigued me. And you know, there are a lot of a lot of good things happening at, at JMU. It's a really auspicious time uh, to be there, despite, you know, the year that everybody has had, higher ed included. Yeah, I mean, JMU is an amazing school, and I'm a huge fan. I, mean, I went there um, before you did, a good 10 years or more before you did. But, you know, I was, I was in a theater program that even in today's world in theater, they, they don't have half the freedom that we did. We had such experimental spaces. We were able to put up anything we felt like putting up, formed an improv troupe, toured them to other colleges. So just the things that we were able to do, the, just the pace of the learning and the freedom that we were given, uh, I'm eternally grateful for that. It's an incredible school. There is truly something for everybody at James Madison. Um, and, you know, I've experienced, as of you now, I've experienced that as a student and alumnus, uh, a super fan of our sports teams, um, a donor, uh, and now as a, you know, employee, um, you, you will find your way and find your place at JMU. And I'm not, I'm not sure that all colleges and universities 
can truly say that. Um, I mean, you know, since 1999, like I said, I, I've been, you know, JMU's been a part of my life, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I can say truly in that long time period, I can count on one hand, maybe, the amount of people who have, you know, had a not so positive experience at Madison. Um, there's just something about the spirit of the place and the people who drive it that is truly unique. Yeah, I completely agree. And then if you look around our industry, you've got graduates, especially in our industry, people at Industrial Light and Magic, the president of the Martin Agency. You just have people all over, you know, copywriters, editors, cinematographers, just so there's a ton of talent that comes out of our school. And I think there's a a mindset of the students that come out that's much more almost like really can do, you know, they're ready to just jump in and do things, which is, is a really unique quality. So, so I don't know whether it's just the kismet of where we are and the, the quality of the school, but it is really a special place. Yeah, definitely love hearing you say that. And, you know, one of the, one of the USPs that we try to articulate is just the fact that the success of our community, especially our student body, it's about, you know, equal parts, intellect and action. And, you know, we've seen employers say that they prefer to hire JMU grads because of the, you know, really um, rigorous coursework that they're getting in the classroom, but also the, the combination of those academic skills with the people skills. And just to be able to relate and um, work together, use critical thinking, um, you know, value things like teamwork and collaboration. All of that is, is what our students are known for. And we're very proud of that. Yeah. And, and rightly so, because I've, we've had a ton of interns from JMU and they've all gone on to pretty great careers in major agencies. And I would, the one thing I would attribute to them is one, some real skills, like real, a real ability to write and write creatively, but even more importantly, interpersonal communication. And, you know, that kind of like, Hey, let's get down to work. Not just I'm, I'm, I'm an academic now. So I think that focus, that combination really does something unique. So now at JMU, you supervise a, a team of about 20, from what I understand, you know, editors, writers, designers, and what advice do you have to other marketers about managing a creative team? Because you've managed a bunch of different creative teams under some pretty intense circumstances. Wow. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot there I could go into. I'll, I'll just touch on the high points. Um, give your people room to create. And, you know, that might be self-explanatory or, or kind of go without saying, depending on the type of creative shop you're in. But let people have the creative freedom just to be able to do their jobs and do them well. You know, it's, it's not the type of field that is dictated by a certain nine to five schedule or by you know, sitting in five meetings per day or by, um, you know, corporate bureaucratic red tape, you know. So I guess as a leader, I try to to just let people um, create through their own vision and, and plug in where needed. So if somebody on my team is asking for help with something or they want feedback, of course, I will give feedback on the video that they're creating or the uh, the photos that they have, but also being able to um, remove roadblocks, I think is part of it. So, you know, you, you get to a certain level in your career where you're, you're less on the ground, um, you know, in terms of day-to-day -day content creation and, and you're required to, to think more high level and to be able to leverage relationship skills to to just remove barriers that are getting in the way of the creative process. So I'm really, truly lucky to have such a talented team of, of hardworking people who, um, who are mission critical in terms of advancing the JMU brand. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, you know, I've experienced because I have all kinds of different clients from different industries. Those are the teams that work the best. And, you know, my philosophy has always been as leading creative teams, I always feel like I'm a valet of just trying to get them from one point to another so they can do their thing. And like you said, remove obstacles and trust, you know, trust that their version of the story, yeah, it might be different than what I would do, but you know, 
their version of the story is probably better than what I would do most of the time. And I think the only th- the only time I see creative teams really fall down or fail is when someone that's in the upper tier of a creative t- creative team micromanages because it's impossible with the volume of work. Right, and you know who wants to be micromanaged, <laughs> especially when you're trying to do a creative endeavor. Right, which you know takes time and and sometimes the best ideas just take a little while to generate and they don't necessarily appear, you know, overnight, so to speak. Um, but, you know, also I, I think a lot of it comes down to um, relationship building. So I think our team, we operate with a mindset of, you know, we believe we're pretty good at our jobs, but also we are, um, we are collaborators with so many partners around campus who are also good at their jobs. And so if we can um, address a blind spot or vice versa, have a campus partner point something out that we might be missing, those relationships are critical. And you know, no one person can do it alone. No one team um, has all the answers, as I said before. But again, going back to the, the Madison way of um, of being collaborative, which is one of our core values, that carries over in our employees as well, even if they didn't go to JMU, just because of the spirit of the place. And so we we try to never say that um, we can handle a certain project all by ourselves. Uh, it, it truly takes it takes a village to, to up-level a brand or to be able to um, push a brand strategy to the masses. And, you know, we're pretty proud of the work we do, but it, it's it's not just us. It requires many people behind the scenes as well. Yeah. And I think great teams that accomplish a lot, you know, like yours. And, you know, I see your content all the time and it's amazing. You guys do an incredible job. I'm a huge fan. Uh, um, and I think one of the things that we talk about, like on our team and with other creative teams we work with, is there's a certain vulnerability to what we do. You have to have a strong opinion but you have to be ready to give it up immediately. Like, you know, we'll be talking about something and I'll, I'll be like, oh, I, here's what I think. Right up until someone says something else that I'm ready to completely change my mind, which doesn't mean I'm wishy-washy, but you have to be really mentally flexible to these jobs. Totally. And, you know, the more people involved in a certain project, especially on the creative side, uh, the more opinions you will get. And, but ultimately, in my mind, it comes down to, you know, who is the sole content owner? At the end of the day, there will be one person to export that video. There will be one person to publish that set of photos. There will be one person um, to hit post on the Instagram post. And so it is tricky when you're, you're talking about navigating so many different opinions. It takes a certain person to be able to you know, receive information and, and take all those opinions in and, and hear them and listen to them, obviously, but also make a call at the end of the day. And, you know, that's that's part of what leadership is about, making those tough calls. But I don't think you need a certain title or a certain corner office to be able to make those decisions. Yeah. Sometimes they get made in really interesting ways, too. You know, sometimes you make one and you learn for, from it. Maybe it wasn't a perfect decision, but it's always better to make one than just hedge you know, and try to like put off a decision or, you know, not take a risk. So sometimes you just have to make them live with them, you know, and iterate, keep learning. So I think it's interesting because it's like, it, one of the things I love about our industry is that learning isn't a top-down thing. It's a, it's a circular thing. You're learning from everybody around you all the time. Totally agree with that, especially, you know, on the creative side in terms of content creation. Um, there are so many brands and you know, in the higher ed space, so many other institutions doing it well that, um, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It's okay to to mimic a great content idea or format that you see out there. You know, make it your own, of course. Do not plagiarize. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, it's kind of a, um, a business where everybody has eyes on each other and you know, it's up to the smart brands to be able to uh, create that content in a unique way that speak to, speaks to their specific audiences, which is difficult. Yeah, and it's a cool community because I think we all celebrate each other's successes and learn from each other constantly, which is pretty cool. Speaking of one of your successes that I think is pretty amazing, 
So the JMU social media media properties ranked number two in overall social engagement recently, number one on Instagram for, you know, among your peers, among 357 NCAA division one institutions. That's pretty amazing. Like, you know, I've been, I've been watching you all and I think, you know, I, I know it takes a village and I know it takes your entire team, but since you've taken over, since you've started being in charge of content, I've seen a real change. I think it's a very positive one. So what do you think contributed to that particular success? Cause that is a, that's quite a success right there. Well, thank you. I mean, on, on behalf of the entire JMU communications and marketing team, thank you. Um, it is, it is not my show though, you know, so you know, there's a, there's actually a separate social media team. Um, and they're the ones who, who, you know, do the scheduling and some content creation and the publishing and, uh, look at metrics and, and everything, uh, that it takes to be able to, um, engage well on social. My team is primarily counted on for the content that goes into those channels. Um, so yeah, you know, in August of 20, we were the number two, um, in overall social media engagement in higher ed. And then in 2019, we were number four, 2018, number one overall, that was huge. 2017, number three overall and 2016, number seven. So, you know, we've been consistently in the top seven the past several years. And it's, it's really amazing when I think about how small our team is relative to the engagement we get on social. Um, you know, we're, we're doing it with a pretty lean staff and, you know, it, there are some of our peer institutions have offices, you know, twice the size of ours, probably much larger. And yet we are, JMU is kind of known for compelling content that that's about people first. So again, thanks. And we really hang our hat on, on that ranking. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, obviously it's the social team and the content team, and it's always so hard to to parse content and social, you know, because they're, they're just two sides of the same coin in some ways, you know, there's that and how they interact on social is really good. The messaging you all do. And I know it starts with, you know, from the top with all the marketers and, and the organization, there's a, there's a real humanness and a real like demonstration of what you stand for. Like, and it's, it's very authentic. And I think a lot of some of the other brands that I've seen that are in your space, I feel like they're selling sometimes, you know, they're, they're pushing narratives that feel like they're trying to sell a little bit. And you all, I never get that. You feel, it always feels like you're celebrating things. That's a really important distinction to make. Um, you know, consumers in my view, they're, they're too smart these days. They will, they will see through that and mentally in their own heads kind of filter out the brands that are, um, perceivably trying to sell them something or the brands that are trying to talk with them. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I think we try to have conversations on social that, that are two way and try to build a community feel. Um, and we try to kind of get out of broadcast mode of, um, nobody likes to be shouted at and nobody likes to be sold to unless, um, they've expressed interest in it. And, you know, organically, JMU has really come a long way. You mentioned celebrate. Just yesterday, I was at the the welcome home celebration for our softball program, uh, which made the the College World Series yeah. semifinals. I'm sure you follow that yeah, match. So right. And just being there, it felt so JMU, and you get it because you're you're an alumnus. Um, but truly, it was just about lifting people up. It was about just celebrating a, a, an amazing accomplishment. It, that will, I think, pay back the university in ways that we might not even know about in the future in terms of student recruitment and just national awareness. Um, so, you know, of course, we can get better in everything, but with the resources that we have in terms of people, power, and financially, we, we really um, do a, a mighty job. Yeah, you sure do. And I think, I think where it comes down to the spirit of your content, I have a a friend who is uh, works in social and is really talented, and he calls it a, an abundance mindset, where you know you're you're out in social, but you're celebrating people and you're celebrating others, and you're not really trying to overtly do or get anything. You're being generous, 
And I think that's what I see in your all's content. And I think that's why it's so attractive. Well, that's, that's awesome to hear, especially, you know, after the past, what, 15 months or so that, that we've all gone through. I mean, you know, there, there was several months and we're still in it. So it's not quite, I can't be truly reflect, reflective yet, but there were times where we were um, just, you know, kind of focused on getting information out. So a purely information play in terms of, you know, um, classes or, you know, the university schedule or COVID testing and vaccines, et cetera. And, you know, on the surface, that's, that doesn't really present many engaging content experiences for, for the user. Um, so we had to get creative in terms of videos that were were done around our stop the spread marketing campaign, et cetera. And, but also, you know, social is a great place to just disseminate information. And, you know, it's, it's the front porch of your brand and it's the first place many people look for the utility aspect of information. And, you know, we recognize that and we had to pick our spots and obviously not get too cute or, try not to get too playful when we're talking about a, a raging pandemic. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a real success in storytelling. And, you know, you see the brands that did it well and you see some brands that didn't because getting too cute or trying to promote when everyone wanted just information, it takes self-control and it takes it not being about you. So I think you all got through that with flying colors. It's not, that was no easy challenge for any brand. And especially a brand as public as you all with, you know, so many opinions flying at you about what you should and shouldn't do. Well, thank you, Steve. You know, we, we learned a lot of things along the way, um, as I hope all organizations have. And, you know, things are just so different um, compared to how they were in February of 20 in terms of priorities or, you know, um, what's our value prop or what differentiates us. You know, just everything has changed. And, um, you know, it takes a takes a certain mindset to be able to be nimble and flexible to adapt to all those changes. Yeah. And I thought one of the things that I saw you all do, and I, I do a lot, have done a lot of work in uh, healthcare marketing and financial marketing. And one of the things you all do that sounds simple, but is so hard for a brand to do. You know, if you think about the pre pandemic messaging and value proposition, and then, you know, all of a sudden you're in the pandemic is that a lot of brands reactions weren't instantly to be good humans. And you all very quickly just were, going to be good neighbors and good humans and good communicators. And I think that's that watching the brands that did that quickly shows you who they really are. That is a great point. And, you know, sometimes a brand's values are, are so visible, right? You could, you could watch a 90 second video and boom, I can take two, three values just from watching that one clip about what that brand stands for. Um, and that's all well and good, but other times, the values are kind of hidden behind the content, whether intentional or not. And so, you know, credit to JMU's leadership from the top down on establishing early on in the pandemic, okay, we are going to stick to our mission. We are going to do everything in our power to provide, you know, an exceptional academic experience. But, you know, we will also prioritize public health and safety. And you know, those are equally important or maybe 1A and 1B, however you want to look at it. Um, but I, I really think sticking to those those values and, and to our mission statement kind of got us through the pandemic. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. So let me ask you a little bit about, this is a teeny bit of a segue, but we've sort of touched on it a little bit, just about cross-platform strategies and cross-platform in general. Because depending on where people are in their marketing career, they may or may not have a lot of experience with cross-platform, but you have a lot of experience there. So with Red Bull, with the NFL media, with JMU, you know, you have magazine, TV, social channels, all of it. Uh, what advice do you have for other marketers around cross-platform? Wow, there's a lot there too. Yeah, I've, um, I'm asking you hard questions that you have to answer in really tight little top-line ways, but you know, you're doing great. <laughs> I'll do my best. So, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind is is optimizing the content for the specific platforms. And you might 
consider that, you know, you might say to yourself, well, duck, Leo, like that is that is basic content marketing. But I've seen brands not doing that. And it's out there. And so that tells me that not everybody's really grasping it. So making sure that, um, you know, the, the storyline and the general um, story you're trying to tell can stay the same but you have to differentiate it across platforms and you have to be able to adjust to the algorithms as well. I mean, we're all kind of at the mercy of big tech when, when you think about it. And some sometimes we get a heads up when there's gonna be a big Facebook algorithm change or if Google announces something, you know, something big for them in terms of SEO, you gotta read and react to that. But other times there might not be a heads up or a warning and so, being able to be flexible in terms of what the algorithms are, are dictating, I think is essential. Yeah. And how, how does that and the need for speed impact your content planning process? I have a, I have kind of a saying that goes back to my journalism roots as well. Um, you know, and it's, it's not always true in marketing, but I try to stick to it, you know, be right first and be first second. So yes, of course, there is a rush to get your content out the door. And yes, speed is important in terms of how you will rank in Google and et cetera. Um, but I, I think it comes down to just taking the extra time to really fine tune a piece before it goes out. You know, those few, those few minutes, or if it's, you know, even an hour, those few minutes or hour that can go a long way in terms of how the audience receives it because you know the last thing you want to do is is make a highly visible mistake that you know your competitors could capitalize on for example if they want to or that you could lose people from you know gen z i mean they are so discerning they know exactly what they want they they represent you know, the next generation of consumer spending um, and we're talking to them. And so if our content is not tight and if it's not geared toward them in many ways, then we could miss out on engaging with them. Um, so just, you know, take the time to um, to fine tune and, and polish content before it goes out and just know that sometimes it's okay to not be first. I would rather be accurate and I would rather be polished than I would be first and, you know, have a mistake. I love that saying. I'm definitely going to quote you on that because that is a great saying. Not being a journalism student, like I have to say, I haven't heard that one. And I really like that. That's a great practice too, because I've seen people make terrible mistakes by rushing. And then I, a friend of mine, uh, Scott, who was on this program, you know, he said, so you always also want to have a healthy skeptic in the room. Someone that's like, well, should we be saying that? You know, it's always good to have at least one of those on your team. Definitely. Yes. And I kind of take pride in being that person sometimes, um, you know, but, but words truly matter. I mean, I, I think everybody in marketing recognizes the power of video as a tool, but I, I just keep seeing so many use cases, so many examples of of words really mattering in marketing these days. And, you know, inclusive language, precise language that that leaves no holes because again, consumers are just too smart these days. And with with all the movement around um, you know, racial justice or um the extra very important attention paid to things like um, people with disabilities and making sure that they can access content or, you know, it's pride month right now. Right. And so when, when you don't get the words, right, that that's a huge problem. And so I, I don't mean to diminish the value of video because I would never do that, but if, if it's written content or if it's a, a written piece that you're putting out there, again, just, just take the time to, to get the words right. And you'll kind of, you'll reap the benefits, although they might not be seen. Yeah. I, I agree with that completely because there, there are so many topics there always have been, but there are a lot today and a lot going on where you want to be accurate because if you come off as careless, 
then you're demonstrating how much you you respect certain things. And I think it's incredibly important to be detail-oriented, especially in writing, but really even in video. You know, if there's a, there's something someone says on camera, that can kill you just as well. Yeah, and, you know, that goes to, for those who work in um, corporate comms or in media relations or PR, you know, that comes down to who do you choose to put out front? Who do you want to represent your brand on camera? And, um, you know, not everybody is good on camera. And that's just, that's a fact. And, you know, certain people kind of have it or they don't. But as a, if you're working in PR, that's kind of your call to be able to determine, is this person who I'm granting a media interview to, will they represent our brand the best way? And actually that's, that's not even part of my day-to-day -day job, but just kind of something I've noticed in the field. Yeah, that's really important. So I, with JMU and, and the things you're in charge of, I would expect that the content needs you know, they serve so many audiences at once. So that, so when you're producing, whether it's written content, I know you're doing it for specific audiences, but also there has to be content that you're producing that's going to you know, be multi-purpose across all these different audiences. How do you plan content like that to reach those audiences? And how do you, how do you tailor stories so that they're multi-audience? Multi yeah, you know, to your point, we, we produce content, original content that goes into every JMU channel. So Madison Magazine, print and digital, jmu.edu, yeah. uh, social media, recruitment marketing efforts, email marketing, direct mail, you know, the list goes on. Um, so we have a standing Thursday content meeting that has really become key to our operations, um, where it's a pretty inclusive group of, of people within university communications and marketing, but also people outside of our, our office. And, you know, it's every Thursday at 1030 a.m. And we really leverage that meeting to be able to, to talk through story ideas, um, go around the room and see what people are planning in terms of what's on the content schedule and just and just cross pollinate. Um, you'd be surprised the value of two humans talking to each other and the the just truly the the value you can get you can get out of a conversation about what two people are working on or you know what projects two different groups within the same shop have going um so we we try to align our content you know dissemination that way and you know i think we have a really hard working team and everybody gets it it's there there's nobody who's kind of a weak link in terms of well why is this content important or how does this push the brand forward we have a again a lean team but a really impressive group of people who are we're all in on advancing jmu and at the end of the day that's our mission that's great yeah i mean people have to have their hearts in it and so what do you think is the biggest mistake you see other content marketers make these days wow another loaded one <laughs> sorry we can, well, I can handle it <laughs> Biggest mistake in, yeah. in terms of content itself or just generally speaking? Yeah, either one, however you want to handle it. I would say um, not understanding the audience. You know, who are you trying to reach and what are their interests? What are they not interested in? What turns them on and off? Like, what are they, what's that persona of the person you're trying to reach? Um, and, and also, kind of a corollary to that. What do you want that audience to do? Um, so when you present your content to them or they engage with it or it, you know, punctures their awareness, okay, so what? But but then what happens next? Are, are you asking them to take a certain call to action or are you, are you, is it purely an awareness play, for example? So, you know, when I said understanding your audience, data, 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 I mean, but you know, it's, it's a fine line because there is so much data available out there. And I'm sure you've heard of the term of uh, paralysis by analysis. Oh yeah. Um, you know, let your human instinct drive strategic decisions. But I think our industry could get better at um, leaning on the data, but, but gleaning insights from it and not just, you know, looking at, 
number of page views on a website or you know the the vanity metrics on social in terms of likes etc but then what's the next step of that how, how do i take this data and change my processes or how do i iterate the next content opportunity based on what i learned last time in terms of what my audience is telling me i think that was a great answer um you know th that's one of my favorite answers to that question because it's you know it might seem simple but it's astounding i i see content and i see things go out where uh, i can clearly tell they haven't thought of the audience very well and it always stuns me but it's still happening so i think it bears mentioning so thanks for touching on that one that's of course. Great. Thanks for the question. Absolutely. So what do you think has had the most impact on your perspective as a storyteller? You know, I have two journalism degrees. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very glad that I went that route. That has had a big impact. Um, you know, although I'm not in a, a pure journalism job right now, um, you know, it's more of a content marketing gig. I've, I've always kind of prided myself on being able to think like a journalist and you know the term media member has gotten so vague and loosely used and there is a huge difference between journalism and media and you know a true journalist versus somebody who's just um considers themselves you know part of the media so there, there's a line there so I've always tried to keep in mind what I learned in J school and and apply those skills to whatever the job is. So if you can think critically like journalists are taught, if you can, um, you know, approach things with a critical eye, that will take you far. And just just pulling out the truth, seeking the truth, um, valuing authenticity, all those things have made an impact on me personally. That's a great answer. I, uh, you know, journalism training and going to journalism school, I think is invaluable. And, you know, the way that I relate to that is if I was asked that question, I would say theater because I always go back and my touchstone is always going back at story structure, you know, really truly understanding story structure and how all the stories we tell are versions of just a few stories you know, the hero's journey, the different types of stories that are told. And that's always my touchstone. So, you know, I think we all, what, what makes the biggest impression on us? I'd love to see how people carry that forward. I think that's yeah, really cool. Yeah, hero, villain, conflict and resolution, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, if it isn't there, it isn't a very good story. So um, so I just have a couple more questions that, I'll, that, uh, that are pretty quick. Um, this has been a blast, by the way. I've had so much fun talking to you today. Likewise. Yeah, thanks for doing this, man. Um, so this past year, you touched on this, but this past year, you know, with COVID and the whole thing was really challenging and, you know, it, it certainly isn't time yet to be like, okay, we're good. But I, a lot of people have had so many different types of experiences, but what was the biggest positive that you took away from this last year? There was a certain, and there still kind of is a certain feeling of just be ready for anything at any time. And I really am proud of the way that our team stepped up and answered the call. You know, we're doing things right now that are not necessarily in our job descriptions or that we would not have thought to be doing, you know, pre-COVID. But just being able to roll with the punches and, and adjust on the fly, I'm really proud of how our team stepped up in ways that we probably even wouldn't have considered before. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of growth, I think, that's happened professionally and personally where people's ability to be emotionally flexible, you know, and, you know, from using new technology, we didn't think we'd all be at home talking to each other on Zoom and still getting work done, you know, to just all of a sudden having less social commitments and where do you put that time? I think it's been a really real, everyone I talk to, it's been a huge learning experience. Definitely. And, you know, I, I truly hope that we're going to take what we learned in the, you know, since March of 20 and apply it. We, we would be fools not to. And there's so many different learning experiences and, and opportunities that will shape, you know, our future success. Um, and on the human side, you know, I kind of use the time to just take a good look in the mirror and ask myself, like, what am I about? What, what do I value? What are my personal values? Um, and you know, I can't think of a time in, in my life where that's been more stark and to be able to just be in touch with who I am as a person 
Um, I hope that has a, a carryover effect um, into my work. But you know, I would encourage everybody if you haven't already to to just spend some time in introspection and reflection and let the challenges that we've all experienced just shape who you are going forward. And you know, every time I, I hear the phrase back to normal, I just cringe because what does that mean? You know, what does back to normal mean? And there are a lot of ways where I don't want to go back to normal. Um, I'm totally open and receptive of a, a, a now normal or, you know, the next normal. But I think if, if people can emerge from this um, as changed individuals, hopefully in good ways that, you know, I guess I'm a dreamer, but I think society at large will be in a much better place. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that was very well said. I think if when people say go back to normal, I always cringe too because it's it's a very closed off way to look at it. We, you know, there's there's no going back to there. Now what we learned about the world and our, you know, we had a lot of preconceived notions just blown up and a lot of habits blown up. And so, you know, our company, we're working entirely differently. There's some real positives to take from it. And I don't know what the next normal will be, but I'm looking forward to it because I feel like we got to get out of a lot of ruts. Totally agree. And, you know, another positive that I'm going to take from it is um, really just just a, a more profound appreciation of my team members and the people around me and just knowing the stuff that they're made of, um, the metal that everybody has shown, the willingness to roll up your sleeves and learn a new skill, or the you know, dedication and commitment to a job that sometimes requires, you know, nights, weekends, and holidays. Um, you know, and that that kind of always on mindset in, in our field. And so um, I'm really going to try to to make it a point to show my appreciation to to people who are around me who have stepped up uh, during some pretty tough times. Yeah, I've been so impressed with people. I've had some people just blow me away with their abilities and their initiative, and just doing things that they never thought they're doing, they'd be doing. It's been a really amazing experience. So I have one last question for you, and I'll let you go because I know you've got things to do and. Uh, I don't want to keep you all day, even though I feel like I could talk to you for a few more hours. It's a lot of fun. Uh, what, what, what advice would present day you give to a younger you? These hard hitting questions are impressive, Steve. <laughs> Leverage the heck out of your network. Um, you, you, you never know when a classmate you have or a peer in some way or a professor or you know, a sponsor, I try not to use the word mentor, but a sponsor will, will benefit you in your career search, but you gotta cultivate those relationships. And if there's somebody you're gonna lean on in your job search, for example, don't let it go three, four years without an email or reach out to that person. They need to know that you exist and that you are um, seeking their help. So again, going back to relationships between human beings. I mean, there's, there's no substitute for that. Um, yeah. And also be open to opportunities. I think it's good to have a strategy in mind and, you know, a, a certain vision for where you want to take your career or, you know, do you want to go to grad school or earn an advanced degree? All those things are, are of course important to have in your mind, but be malleable and, you know, if an opportunity presents itself that, that might not necessarily be in your original plan, be ready for that. Um, and, you know, because opportunities just, they're not there every day and they don't present themselves all the time. And so um, I think I've seen some people just stay focused on what they think their track should be. And when an opportunity arises, just, you know, they kind of poo poo it or, or close the door on that. And, you know, with, with life experience and more years under your belt, of course, comes more wisdom. Um, but for, for younger people starting out, um, have a vision, but keep the door open for opportunities always, because that's how you will learn, grow, make mistakes, take chances, um, and, and just kind of find yourself professionally. Yeah, that's great, man. Thank you for that. I think that's great advice for people. And, 
for a younger you or a younger me or anyone. Um, I think, you know, keeping your eye open for opportunities and just being, being flexible. And, you know, it is really all about relationships, which is really cool. So, hey, Matt, thanks so much for doing this today. This was fascinating and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it too, Steve. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It was great talking to you. Oh, 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 oh